0: Well, as we look at this, uh, this series, The Prodigal God, and look at um, just a very few verses over several weeks, I'm a little bit daunted by that, because it's kind of a different way of, 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 of working, really. Normally we kind of look at a passage one week, and then we move on to the next passage and the next passage. Whereas this time, we're kind of looking at it from a few different angles. And... Uh, I just think that's really exciting. But I am quite daunted as well as as we do some preparation. And and I've given Paul um, a bit of a trickier job this time in his preaching next week as uh, as we continue to look at the same passage over a few weeks. But there is so much in this passage. Some people have said that if if the whole of Jesus' teaching was like a lake, then this chapter is like one of those fantastic, clear spots that allows you to peer right down to the bottom because it's just such a beautiful set of images that just gives us something of the the, the nature of God as well as the nature of sin and the nature of salvation. Just to kind of set this in context, by chapter 15 of Luke's Gospel, Luke has established Jesus' ministry, his teaching ministry, his healing ministry, his his, his mission to come and to save. And Luke reports all kinds of miracles, the, the release of people from demonic possession, the healing of people, the feeding of people with incredibly small amounts of food, and it becomes vast amounts of food. Jesus has performed many miracles And there is huge interest from all sorts of different people. Of course, he's he's by now got his 12 disciples and actually a far wider group of people who are saying, yeah, I'm going to follow you. And already they're beginning to learn on the job. And time and again, as we look through Luke's gospel, there are crowds that we don't quite know who they are where they stand in relation to Jesus but but they're certainly intrigued they want to know more about Jesus they want to hear but here in chapter 15 actually there are two groups specified and so as we begin this series in the prodigal God we'll look at the people that are around Jesus this morning because they're kind of important for what he says And you see in verses 1 and 2, the groups that are there, and probably, as well as these groups, would be his disciples. But certainly, there were tax collectors and sinners. The outcasts of society were there, and they were listening. They wanted to hear. Do you hear? They're gathering around him. They want to hear him. And then there's the Pharisees and the teachers of the law sitting there, or standing there, muttering. How can he welcome sinners and eat with them? How can he do that? Eating with people in that time was kind of a sign of acceptance, a sign of of saying, well, yeah, I'm happy to be in community with you. I'm happy to be with you. And i reach out my hands of friendship to you. And the Pharisees are going, how can he do that? Kind of say, well, we wouldn't do such a thing. It goes against the law. It makes us dirty and impure and, and, and all sullied. How can he do that? And what follows actually is Jesus' response to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. It's not actually his response to the tax collectors and the sinners. They're there and they hear, but actually what he's saying in these verses is in response to the mutterings of the Pharisees. And he teaches three parables that were intended to challenge the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in their view about God, about sinfulness and about being put right with God, salvation. And God willing, perhaps these parables will challenge us afresh as we look at them today and in the weeks ahead. As I said, this series is called The Prodigal God and we normally associate that prodigal word with the prodigal son, the third of these three parables. is isn't actually called that in the Bible, you'll notice. It's kind of a, a heading that we get in the NIV and one or two of the other translations, the prodigal son. And I don't know if you've ever thought about what the word prodigal actually means. I kind of just wrapped it up with the whole story of a a man that goes away, a son that goes away, wastes everything, comes back, and it's all kind of wrapped up in the prodigal thing. And so when I first saw this this book that was written by a guy called Tim Keller, American guy who's a pastor of a church in, in Manhattan, kind of a different setting to here, and yet speaks so clearly through this This parable. I I was given a copy of this book about three years ago. And I read it back then, and I thought at some point I I need to share this with folks because it's just fantastic. The word prodigal actually means recklessly extravagant, can mean recklessly wasteful hence the prodigal son, I guess. But it's this idea of being lavish. There's extravagance in someone that's prodigal. And it's that that Tim Keller wants to pick up in his book, that I want us to pick up in this short series. The lavishness of God. The extravagance of God. Because actually that challenges the view of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now for the next four weeks we're going to mostly concentrate on the actual parable of the lost son and his brother and his father and and look at that in different ways. But today I want us to take a look at verses 1 to 10 that we've just read because they fit with the context of what's going on. They talk to us and speak to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, as well as the tax collectors and the sinners. And somewhere in there, we fit. There are two things I'd like us to look at this morning as we see these words spoken I'd like us to look for a, a short while at the lost things in those two parables. The lost sheep and the lost coin. I'd like us to look at those and just see what, what that teaches us. And then I'd like to briefly look at, at the, the, the joyful seekers. Those that go looking for the lost things. And again, see what that teaches us. Because I, I just think it's wonderful. Wonderful. So let's have a look at the lost things, first of all. You see, the lost things are really intended, as I've already said, to challenge the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who are seeing this man, Jesus, doing all sorts of amazing things, but they're also seeing him welcome. People that, according to their religious criteria, do not fit in a religious world view and he wants to challenge that view he wants to challenge the complacency and the coldness of that view the lost things the sheep and the coin and actually the lost son as well later but we're sticking with the sheep and the coin today they give us a, a, a view represent if you like People that are far from God that they're lost and Jesus would have been perfectly aware of what Isaiah had said many many years before Isaiah 53 said this we all like sheep have gone astray each of us has turned to his own way And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus would have been perfectly aware, so would the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, that actually we all, them included, us included, have gone astray like sheep. And Actually, it's a bit of an insult because sheep are stupid. Sheep are dumb animals. And here we're being compared to sheep. Sheep will go anywhere to find a bit of grass. Their eyes are only really for filling their bellies. And a sheep will go into all sorts of precarious and dangerous places and, and find itself up on a ledge and then realise, oh gosh, I, I don't know how to get down. And unless the shepherd comes to help the sheep, the sheep will just fall to its death. The sheep is a dumb animal that has nothing but a view for filling its belly, even if that puts it in danger. And a sheep is incapable of helping itself once it's in danger. And Jesus is, is reminding us that we are like sheep who have gone astray. That's kind of offensive even to us, nice people that we are helpless that we are like sheep who just follow our own way and do our own thing and it's even more offensive to say that we are like sheep who are helpless in finding our way to being saved but you see he was speaking to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who were respectable, who were very competent, who were well-versed and well-educated, who were morally upright, good people. And he was challenging a mindset that said, well, actually, I'm doing what's right. I'm following the law, and so actually I am acceptable to God. God owes it to me, because I am good and right and clean and proper and follow the law. Actually forgetting that God in his grace gave the law, because we are precisely in need of the law to help us to relate to God. And it seems that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and maybe us, fall into the trap of thinking that we can deal with our sin. We can gain favour with God through our own actions, through being just a bit more upright by being just a bit more dutiful, by just doing what we ought to do and and, and making it look all right, by being good. See, it's so easy to reduce Christianity to just religious behaviour. Seeing Jesus as a good teacher, which he is, One to emulate, which he is, but stopping there. See, we can't deal with sin. We can't find our way to God any more than a sheep can find its way back from a craggy cliff where there is no way back for it. We need a saviour. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law needed a Saviour as much as the sinners and the tax collectors. And they needed to be confronted with that. We need a Saviour. We need to recognise we can't do it ourselves. And that would have been shocking. Back then. Maybe that's shocking to you today. Maybe it doesn't really surprise you, but maybe it just hits you again this morning. So those lost things were really trying to make a point to the Pharisees. They couldn't be found on their own. The sheep were helpless, the coin, even more helpless. You don't see a coin lying under the sofa and then working its way back out and into your pocket, do you? Once it's there, it's there, it's stuck. Possibly for months and years. Or maybe just until next week when we lift up the sofa and hoover underneath it. But we can only find it. It cannot find us. Jesus here he is a good teacher and I won't deny that I don't deny that but he is so much more than a good teacher but here he teaches fantastically about the complexity of sin if you think about those lost things for a minute they each illustrate a facet of our own sinfulness think about it the sheep is naturally inclined to wander and do what it does I think that could be me the coin has been subjected to I guess carelessness management that, that, that allows it to be lost and I wonder whether that's a little bit like the influences that are on us and our environment things that happen to us that maybe reinforce our sinfulness. And we'll come to the Son, but he surely is just an incredible picture of pride and selfishness. And if we see our sin like that, we can begin to see the complexity of our sin. It's not just about doing the right stuff and then we'll be sorted. It's deep within us. Let me give you an example for a minute. Say Mr. Mr. Smith in a congregation has real problems with anger. He can get verbally really aggressive. And actually, he can get really physically aggressive because of his anger. And you could look at that and say, well, maybe it's genetic. Maybe that's the way he's wired and born. It's no fault of his own. Maybe he says, well, it's not my fault. But a bit like the sheep. Or maybe, like the coin, he's not been well managed in the past. Maybe he's the result of poor parenting. Or maybe the result of other external influences on his life that has caused him to just get to a point of anger and rage. Or maybe that anger and rage is about selfishness, wanting his own way and can't get it. Or maybe it's a bit of all three. And Jesus is saying sin is deep. It's inground within us. It's deepened by, by the environment that we're in. And then is made even more complex by the way that we behave, the choices that we make. So Jesus challenges in those lost things a view of sin that's all about just being a bit better behaved, that's about just obeying the rules and then God will smile upon you. He say no. Whether you're a sinner and a tax collector or a Pharisee and an upright person, you are helpless in your sin. But then the second point that I want us to look at brings us a little bit more hope. The joyful searchers in both those first two stories. The shepherd and the woman who go looking for the sheep and the coin. I think in our society, in our generation, maybe for generations before, but certainly today, we see faith and religion about being humanity searching for God. And in a sense, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. We read in Ecclesiastes 3 that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. There is something within us that searches for God. But actually, it's not enough for us to try to find God. Because, first of all, as we've seen already, we're helpless we cannot save ourselves and bring ourselves to God but also actually we'd be inclined to get proud if we were to succeed in finding God by our own ingenuity by our own efforts by our own behaviour we'd begin to get a little bit like the Pharisees and say well look at me if I can do it, you can do it come on, just raise your game a bit I'm alright, so what about you? It's not me that's the problem, it's you and the way that you behave. Because our human nature is like that. But do you notice in both these parables there is a joyful seeker. Someone who delights in coming to find the thing that is lost. And Jesus is speaking about himself, the great shepherd. Paul articulates it so well in in his letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, where he says this in verse 1 As for you, you were dead in your transgression and your sin. Dead. You'd had it. No hope. But then going on a little bit to verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's by grace that you have been saved. Jesus came to find you. Jesus came and died and rose again for you. And it's by grace. Grace is sheer, undeserved generosity. It's by grace that you have been saved. And verse 8 goes on to say, and actually that's not from yourselves, it's a gift from God. Verse 9, not by works, so that no one Can boast but in humility to acknowledge that we are lost and whether we're hanging from a precipice by our fingernails or we're actually just wandering around in a field just pleasing ourselves we are lost whether we're sitting in the middle of the floor plain as day, as a coin lost or whether we're buried deep in the ground of years and years and years of covering up before God we are lost and Jesus came to find us how good is that that the creator of the universe came to find us So Jesus challenges the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the sinners, the tax collectors, the disciples. He challenges us to humbly see where we are before him, but to joyfully see that in his lavish generosity, he comes looking for us. prodigal God I wonder this morning if you are struck by the fact that you you've always felt that you've got to just do something a little bit more to find acceptance before God you've just got to be a little bit more straight in a certain area before God would have you You've just got to behave just for another week. Just keep it going, keep it going, keep it going before God will have you. Maybe you're just scared that actually you'll let God down. And that's okay as long as it doesn't prevent you from coming to Jesus and saying, here I am. Because you see, none of us are good enough whatever we might portray to the world none of us are good enough but as it says in in Revelation behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come in and eat with him Be in community with Him. Share fellowship with Him. And He with me. So maybe today it's about opening the door and saying, Lord, you know exactly what I'm like. Please come in. Please help. maybe there's a challenge here for you about how you relate to friends or colleagues neighbours or family who don't know Jesus a challenge not to look down on them no matter how well meaning you might communicate their need for Jesus to actually just love them and be what Jesus would have you be for them. Recognise afresh that we are sinners saved by grace as much as the next person. As we come to communion this morning, I invite you just to recognise our absolute need for help Invite you in the quiet in just a moment to confess your sinfulness, your tendency to turn your back on God and to do stuff your own way and say, Lord, I'm sorry. Invite you to ask God by the power of his spirit to help you put things right because he does want us to honour him in our lives to put him first in every area of our lives and that will shape us, that will shape our behaviour it will shape our attitudes and our words and our thoughts but that's with his help and our cooperation don't resign yourself to say, well I can't do anything about that Jesus came to rescue you might be that other people will be used to help you in that rescue. That other people will be Jesus' hands and feet to steady you, to walk with you. Let them in. Let them help you. Let them walk with you and encourage you. Let them challenge you and build you up. And by all means, we would love to pray with anyone that's in that place this morning